Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. I want to talk about something that I, I just got impressed me of just a week or two ago. And I don't even know how I got the thought in my mind, but once it was there, it was sort of like, well, God, that's an interesting thought. Where does that go? What, where, does, where do I put that in the, in the puzzle? I want to talk to you tonight about the divine providence of God. I don't know if you've ever heard that terminology before. Have you ever heard the divine providence of God? That's a very interesting topic and not one that we usually talk a lot about. Uh, in the scope of, of that terminology and in, in that realm, we, we hit terms like deism. And you may say, well, what, what exactly is deism? I want to give you the definition. I'm going to read the definition. Deism is the view that regards God as the intelligent creator of an independent and law-abiding world, but denies that he providentially guides it or intervenes in any way with its course of destiny. There are a lot of people in the world, they may not be atheists, they may be agnostic, that hold deism. Yeah, there's, there could be a God, but he's not interested in your life. He's certainly not interested in what's going on. He occupies himself with other things. He has no real personal relationship with his creation. And when you start to talk in that realm, what you really begin to do is attack the love of God. You, you overlook the mercy of God, the benevolence of God. You, you don't see him as the creator. Um, and it really leaves uh, unexplained those great and divine events that have occurred through history especially Calvary. But there's another mode, and this is a mode that, you're more, that we're more familiar with. Um, it's, it's the miraculous mode, that, that everything spontaneously can be changed at any moment, in any, any way, and it operates out the, outside the normal course of providence. When I say that, I'm saying when God, when God put the galaxies into place and the sun and the moon and the stars, everything followed the divine order. When we look at our calendar, when we look at the period of sunlight, which we changed just recently, and of light, and the orbit of the earth and the speed of the earth, everything is in a divine order. We set our clocks by it. And that's really good because if it wasn't in a divine order, we would not exist. Just think of what would happen if the earth did not turn and stayed in one position. Half the earth would die. There'd be no sunlight on one part of the earth. It would be so cold there, everything would freeze. But God set in motion divine providence. We... Um, Know that God's grace is, able to, is sufficient to supply all of our needs. And in the miraculous mode, that miraculous frame of mind, we believe that God will all of a sudden, in a moment, oftentimes bring in blessing. And oftentimes he's done that. I remember I was going to Northview Church during summer break from ABI, and one morning... Uh, one of the sisters in church got up and she said, Pastor, I want to testify. Uh, I almost didn't come to church today, she said. But what happened is I have no gas for my car. My car is empty. And I, I really wanted to come, but I knew I wouldn't make it. So I said, Lord, I'm asking you to help me get to church. And by faith, I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to drive there and trust that you're going to get me to church. Well, pastor, I, I got into my car and I was leaning out to close the door. And I happened to look down on the ground just underneath the door. And there was a $20 bill just laying there. Now, we've all had experiences where God has done things like that. But that would be in the realm of the miraculous. Back then, $20 and 75 
bought a tank of gas. I think she said, I got enough for gas and lunch. But that's the realm of the miraculous. For you and me to get $20, unless you're really a, got a high-paying job, you got to work a little while to get that. That's providence. In other words, I go to work, I work my eight hours, and in two weeks, I get a deposit in my account. That's the providence of God, similar to that. Now, let me define providence so you got an idea, a general idea of what I'm talking about. It is, comes from a Latin word, providentia, which signifies foresight. The word is used to denote the biblical idea of the wisdom and power which God continually exercises in the preservation and the government of the world for the ends which he has purposed to accomplish. That's a really good definition. Let me say that again. The word is used to denote the biblical idea of the wisdom and power which God continually exercises in the preservation and the government of the world for the ends which he proposed to accomplish. Now, I can go back and look in Romans the 8th chapter, verse 28, and I can see how that fits in that definition. For all things work together for the good of those that love God, for them who are called according to his purpose, his purpose, his his outcome, his, his proposed outcome. And like I said, when I, I look at creation, I, I'm overwhelmed by divine order. From the celestial realm of the stars to the order on the earth, I, what's amazing, if you've lived uh, by the lake or if you've lived near an ocean, how the tides come in and the tides go out, you can look in, in the paper and you'll know exactly what time the tide's going to come in tonight and when it's going to go out. Because God has established an order not only in heaven, but he's established order on earth. And unless we pay attention, we're not a, we're, we miss so much of that order. How about gravity? It's always been here. God has placed these things on earth. If, what would happen if there was no gravity? You just float away. But all these things that God has put in place help us to survive. So I'll say it again. Divine order is essential for our survival, and in a sense, true sense, it's essential for the church's survival. Now, I can go back and give you, let me give you an example in Scripture. We've been talking in the last couple of weeks, we've mentioned Job a number of times. And Job is a perfect uh, example of divine providence. When we first meet Job, Job is living an ordinary life. He's blessed to have a wonderful family, has a wonderful home. He's well accepted by his neighbors. He's looked up to, he's respected. Him and his wife are getting along great as children. We don't know a lot about them, but we know that they've got a great father that prays for them every single day. And then all of a sudden, God sets something in place. He sets something in motion. He points uh, Job out to a character which he's created, by the way. Satan was created by God. Satan rejected God's authority through his pride, and he was cast down to earth. He became the enemy of God. But God points out to his enemy, Job. And when he sets this process in order, I want to tell you, he has an outcome. When he sets this process moving, God sees the end from the beginning. And so Job, 
all of a sudden he, he unbeknownst to him, he's unaware. He's not, you know, Job mentions never even has had a conversation with God, verbally, like it does in the latter part of the book of Job, where Job and him talk together. Job prayed to God, but he never had the interaction that he had with God until his trial, till the course of events had started to transpire. And that's one of the things I want to focus on, on, on tonight, that when God sets something in motion in your life, it usually will bring you to a place in that trial where you begin to have more intimate conversation with God. More intimate. You have prayed in the past, but when you get into the situation that God has orchestrated for your life, it will bring you to a place where you begin to converse with him without all of the fabricated niceties. I, I'm trying to watch, Brother Rob, when I pray in the morning, that I get away from just repeating the same old jargon over and over again. I catch myself, I don't know if you do that. I'm saying stuff I've said every day, and I don't even know what I'm saying. Because I've always said it, because I want to fill a time slot. I have to pray, so I have to fill this half hour or 40 minutes with verbiage. And I'm catching myself, and I say, Steve, no, no, stop. And I know I'm chasing a rabbit here, but I feel like God wants me to chase this one. What is prayer? Prayer is conversation. It's where I speak to God, then I stop, and I'm polite, and I let God speak to me. Oftentimes, God speaks to me through his word. You have to be careful. Did I ever tell you the story about the guy? He was a real religious sort of a fellow. Man, he had it all figured out. And one day he said, you know, i got to figure out what God wants me to do today. What's the will of God for me today? Hmm. And he, he got this idea. I'm just going to open up my Bible and I'm going to stick my finger on the page and God is going to tell me exactly what I'm going to do today. So he flipped his Bible open and he stuck his finger on the page and where, where he pointed it, it said this. And Judah went out, Judas went out and hung himself. See, some Christians operate like that. And he says, well, must be something wrong with this. Let me, here, let's try it again. And he did it again, and this, suppose, I don't know if it's true, but it sounds good. He did it again, and the next verse he came to was, go and do thou likewise. <laughs> but see, when you start to live your life like that, with no depth of sincerity, you're going to wander outside the providence, that God, the providence of God. I want to tell you, and I'll say this over and over again tonight, that God has set in motion in your life a course for you to follow. He will at times interrupt that course with the miraculous. Now the miraculous is anything that operates or comes into existence outside of natural cause. In other words, I saw, I was on YouTube doing something and I came across this video and it's the first time I've ever seen this. It was a video taken of someone uh, in a revival and, and they're, they're, you watched their arm grow out. It was real, sh I don't know if anybody saw that, but it was real short and it said, watch this video. And it was during a worship service or worshiping. And I watched the arm. I mean, it came out a foot or two. I'm not talking a quarter of an inch. But I want to tell you, that's out the, outside the natural order of things. And God does that. But I want to tell you, most times in your life, God is going to operate within the order of providence. So see, see, people are watching you and I. A miracle is like a firecracker. All of a sudden there's an explosion and before long you forgot all about it. It was just an explosion. But the, a miracle is something that people watch evolve. Example, how about a cocoon? 
this little worm goes into a cocoon. You watch him go in there, and for three to four weeks, he's inside. And at the end of the fourth week, and I, I'm guessing at the, the, the time of transformation for the, the little uh, caterpillar, at the end of about four weeks, it shakes, and then he comes out a new creature. And by the way, that does not fit evolution at all. He went in one thing, and he comes out completely different in every way. So, what is the greater miracle? All of a sudden, there's a butterfly, or you watch the progression of metamorphosis, where there's a change. Now, God usually uses the second in our lives, because he's left us here to be epistles, we're here as living epistles and we're read of all men. They can watch the transformation of the sinner to the saint. Let me read 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Now, when I look at the Old Testament, there's lots of examples. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages have come. And so when I look at people like Job and David and Abraham and the prophets, and I see their struggles, I look at Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah the weeping prophet, I can see the changes that are happening through the progression of the tribulation that they're going through. And 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, verse 2 says, You are epistles written in our hearts, known and read of all men. Now, some letters or some books are really short. You know, you might, does anybody know what the shortest book in the Bible is? I just saw it. I'm no genius. I just took this test, and it was Third John. So some, some are really short, and you really got to pay attention, and they're gone. And some are like the longest book in the Bible. Anybody know what the longest book in the Bible is? Book of Psalms. Psalms is the longest book in the Bible. And some, some have a beginning and a longevity that you can watch. Now, every one of you, being an epistle or a book, you each have a unique and distinct story. You were placed in your, as an embryo in your mother's womb and given life, and when you were born, God called you onto the earth for a purpose. Now, your, your daily experiences are going to be different than the person that you're sitting next to because you were distinctly created by God, just like they say, Every snowflake's different than the other one. But when you look at Job, going back to Job, he lost his herds, he lost his children, he lost his relationship with his life, wife, he lost his respect among his friends, and it seemed like he was losing his ability to communicate with God. Because he keeps saying to himself in the book of Job, oh, I wish I could argue my case before him. I would tell him this, and then in the midst of all these things, when it looks like Job cannot go any lower, that's where God jumps in and reveals himself to Job. And he says, okay, Job, I've heard your conversation. I've, I've been with you through all of these trials. But you think that you have the answers? You think you know me so well. You think that you know my plan for you and, and my purpose for humanity. Just tell me some simple things then about my creation. Talk to me about the behemoth and, and share with me about how I, I hung the stars in space. You who, he said, you who's claimed to be able to, uh, to correspond or, or question God. But God is really causing Job to stop and look at his condition and communicate with him and learn to trust in his wisdom. So the end of Job's life, 
the Bible, the last book of Joel, mentions that he was better off at the end of his life than he was in the beginning. Now, I would like to add an addendum to that. There was one thing that he never did get back. Anybody want to take a guess what he, he didn't get restored? He had children again, but he never got his original children back. And that means a lot to a parent. You can't, you can't replace your children like you can a puppy. And you can't even replace a puppy with another dog, anybody that loves dogs. So there were still marks on Job's life, even though at the end of this, this, this trial, God blessed him and changed him. He still had the mark of the trial, but he had a greater relationship with God and a depth of wisdom that he had not previously. So what did God allow to be used in this, this, um, this providence of his life? Well, he used Satan. He could have stopped Satan. You see, he pointed him out to Satan, so Satan was there. Satan was sort of instituting the, the characters involved, but God allowed that to happen. He took the hedge away, gave him permission, so what did Satan use in tribulation or persecution of Job? He used people. He used the Sabians, which were people to come against and steal his flocks. He used nature because a tornado came and destroyed the house. He used family because Job's wife came to him and said, why don't you just curse God and die? He used his close friends to pick his bones and, and claim that he had sinned against God. So in this trial of Job, we begin to see the characters that Satan and the elements that Satan can use against you in the pressure cooker of purification. I kind of like that, the pressure cooker of purification. Oh, I like food. I can see my mom's pressure cooker. Remember, I don't know if you got them anymore. Remember the pressure cooker? You put that steel thing on the top. You ever have one get stuck? Poof, right to the ceiling. But you would, what did you put in pressure cookers? You put real bad cuts of meat. <laughs> we used it a lot. Mom and dad didn't, we, we watched things. You could take a round steak or a tough roast, you could throw it in the pressure cooker and that baby come out edible. I wonder if you put a boot in there, if you could eat that. We never got to that stage though. So in our lives, God allows things to come and be like pressure cookers that will soften our hearts. You know what a hard heart is? A hard heart is one that's not sensitive to God. It's not sensitive to others, but is only self-focused on itself. So when tribulation comes through providence, God's divine providence into our lives, we can rejoice in the knowledge that God is causing something to enter into our realm of existence that will change us into something that's usable and pliable in his hands. We've heard the parable of the, the potter and the clay. He had to rework the clay because uh, he wanted it to be soft so that he could shape it. And the, cho the changes to Job could only have come through this method of tribulation. And God saw that. I, I laugh just like you, anybody that's lived for God any length of time. They laugh at people that come up and say, I'm praying for patience. Ever hear anybody say that? I want to get away from them. 
Because I know God's going to answer that prayer. Because you know what, what brings patience? <laughs> Tribulation. Struggle. And they'll, they'll come back and say, you know, I prayed that prayer and I don't know what God's, God's doing to me but, or not doing for me, but everything's going wrong. Oh, I guess you're getting patience. You're learning patience. And God's saying, well, you asked me for patience. I just granted you your request. I, I look at another, I'm gonna look at a, one or two more people in the Old Testament, then I wanna go to the New Testament to, to squelch the pessimist that, said, that says that the, the dispensation of the Old Testament is completely different than the New. Because people say, well, we don't need to look at the Old Testament because we live in the dispensation of grace. So the Old Testament, you can read it if you want, but it has no real divine effect on your life because we're living in a completely different environment. I don't buy into that at all. I believe everything that's in that Old Testament was written there as an admonition for instruction for us that are living in the New Testament. Brother, Brother Wendell Gleason, Stan Gleason's dad, he used to have a saying when he would teach at ABI, and he, he told us one day, he says, and he taught Old Testament. The old, the old Testament is in the new contained. The new, no, I got it backwards. The new is in the old contained. The old is in the new explained. They're, they fit together, just like a hand in a glove. So you can't separate them. So when I look at this example of Joseph, he should fit the, the example of someone in the New Testament. The same, the same God is working in both uh, dispensations. I look at Joseph. We go back, and I'm going to read from Genesis, the 37th chapter, verse 9. And it says, and he dreamed yet another dream and told it its brethren and said, behold, I have dreamed a dream more and behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars made obeisance to me and he told it to his father and his brethren and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I, shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come down to bow ourselves to thee on the earth? And his brethren envied him, but his father observed saying, I... I find it amazing that, that uh, his dad realized, Jacob saw what the interpretation to the dream was, that the moon and the stars were him and his family. Now, Joseph is intrigued. I can only imagine what the dream was like. But I believe that sometimes God has HD dreams. I mean, he saw it vividly, he was excited about it. He began to understand that God had a plan for his life and he was going to get respect. But it didn't happen the way that he thought it would because he thought, well, maybe this will happen this week. I hope it happens by the end of the month. It's going to be hard to wait for this. But it took nearly... 13, he was 17 years old and he was 30 when actually he assumed the position of second in command to Pharaoh in Egypt. And instead of going from the fields of Jacob, he went into the three P's in his life. There's three P's in his life. There's the pit, there's the prison, and there's Potiphar, or then Potiphar. Three things that were down. He went down to the pit, Potiphar, and the prison. He's not going in the right direction. And here we are as Christians, and God's written this for our admission, and God gives you a promise, and everything goes wrong. And you're saying, and the devil's right there saying, you know, that wasn't from God, because if it was from God, all of a sudden things would be going right. You'd start heading in the direction of the vision. But he's going the opposite direction. Everything's, lo he's losing everything instead of gaining. Why? Why does God do that? Why does God build us up 
to let us fall? Why does he give us a promise and then, I'm not saying he took it away, but he moves it aside. Is it that God is an antagonist and he wants to tease us? Is it like a little boy that's prodding a dog with a stick to try to to get a reaction? No, God is training us and he's equipping us to handle the promise that he's promised. Joseph was not ready to reign under Pharaoh. But he learned patience, he learned obedience, he learned how to rule in the things that he experienced. You know how he became a good ruler? (laughs) Prison! And the jailer put him over all the prisoners. What'd you get your degree in? Um, Jail supervision. You learn how to cope with situations in your trial, but it also teaches you and prepares you for the blessing and the door that God's going to open to you in your future. He lost everything before he gained the promises of God. And sometimes you will lose everything before you gain anything. And I think I mentioned this uh, last week. The things that seem to be hurting you, if you really step back and look at it, are the things that are actually making you better. The trials that you think are destroying your relationship with God. If you really step back and look at it and you continue to walk in integrity and endurance, they're the very trials that are making you into the image of God. I, I've oftentimes thought, and I don't know if you daydream when you read the Bible. I, I'm reading the Bible through, and sometimes I hit something in my mind. I continue to read, but my mind is in imagination of something I just read. And, and I thought about how I would have reacted when I saw those brothers that sold me. Who did he sell? Was it the Ishmaelites that he was sold to? That, that he was sold to? I think it was the Ishmaelites. And ruined his life. Just a kid, 17 years old. 13 years of his life, the prime years of his life, gone by his brother's betrayal. And here he is. He's got all this wealth and power and authority now. And those brothers are standing before him. All he would have had to do is snap his fingers and say, take their lives. And it would have, that, that would have ended all of that anger that might have been there. But you know what? He told his brothers because they, they realized that Joseph could. I didn't realize, who was preaching? I I don't know if his brother Russ was preaching just recently about that when a king, a new king took a position that he destroyed the family of the reigning king. When he said that, I got, I I was um, nervous because there's a transition here. (laughs) They're going to kill me or what? Has anybody seen Brother Kylie? (laughs) But they, he could have ended their life. But notice what he says. On Genesis 50. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, Joseph's face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, Notice what he says. Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God. But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. Could we say that in our trials 
those things that come against us, oh yeah, somebody might have said something or did something to you to hurt you, but if you could, like Joseph, at the end of the trial say, you know, they meant to hurt me. There's no doubt about it. That was mean what they did. But God meant it for my good because through this, he has shown me things that I would not have seen unless I would have went through this dark trial. God meant it for good and for the preservation. And get this, it's not all about you. I've heard that from my wife more than once. Honey, it's not all about you. I don't know if you've said that. It's not all about you. And I'm glad she says that because sometimes I have to check myself and say, Steve, it isn't about you. Those trials that you're going through may not just be about you. They may be about someone else that you're going to affect in the way that you live through your living epistle. You know, you, you're, all, um, you're all publishers in a sense. You're all books. Except you're a living book and people are watching you. Everything that you say and do. And you're affecting lives. I look, I have people, special people in my life that I look at and I regard as heroes. And if I were to make a list, and I'm not going to tell you who they are, but if I were to make a list of those people, the first five of them would be people that have gone through severe trials in their life and maintained a positive attitude. Because I find that type of human, uh, that human expression encouraging to me because if they can endure those things, I can do much better by following their example. And we've got some of those people in our church. You know, that they, the world can be falling apart in their lives and they can be suffering, but every time you come up to them, there's a smile on their face. Always a smile on their face. All right, let's go back and look at... Um, Two examples, and I think I'm going to wrap up after these two examples. One is a guy named Paul. His actual name was Saul, Saul of Tarsus. Saul, of course, we know was a great persecutor of the church. He was, he was present at Stephen's martyrdom, actually holding his clothes while they stoned him to death. But God, in his mercy, took a persecutor and he, the persecutor, became the persecuted. What I want to point out to you tonight is this. On the road to Damascus, when Paul was going there to imprison more Christians and possibly kill more Christians, God stopped him on the way. Now, his conversion did not take place on the road to Damascus. He met the Lord on the road to Damascus. I believe his conversion took place from the time he met him on the road and the time that Ananias came to him. Those three days. Because I believe in, when he was blinded on that road, notice what he said. The light came, a voice spoke, he said, who art thou, Lord, or who art thou, Adonai? And when that voice came back and said, I'm Jesus. Oh, whoa. I wouldn't want to be... In that position, here you're killing people that claim to be his followers, and here is the master stopping you. And he was blinded from that moment. For three days, he didn't eat, he didn't drink, he couldn't see. And Ananias is approached by God, and he says, here's what I want you to go, Ananias. I want you to go to a place uh, on a street called Straight, and there's a man named Saul who will be there, and I want you to tell him this. Let's see if I can find that scripture real quick. Acts, the ninth chapter. Thirteen. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, 
how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But notice what God says to Ananias. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles. Does that meet your, does that meet your description? Could he be saying that about you? Let me ask you, are you a chosen vessel? Absolutely. Are you there, are you here on this earth to bear his name before the world? Yes. Before kings and the children of Israel? Okay, this is what I want you to tell him. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. All right, let's have some fun, okay? We got 50 new people in here that have never been to church before, and we're going to try to get them baptized and filled with the Holy Ghost tonight. I got really good news for y'all. Um, tonight, you have an opportunity to take part of the precious blood of Jesus Christ, have your sins remitted, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. But I want to tell you, after this happens, your life is going to have times of misery like you've never had before. And things are going to get tough, really tough. That's what he's telling Saul. I got good news for you. You're going to suffer. And you get into the book of Corinthians, and notice what he says in 2 Corinthians. He's trying to, there's people picking at Paul's bones, trying to, to, to pick him apart, he's not a great guy, you know, he's not any better than any of us, so on and so forth. Notice what Paul uses in his defense against those people that are trying to discredit his ministry. Because I want you to understand, you will be able to stand against your enemies in the same way that Paul did against his. Verse 22 of chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant. Now notice what he uses for his biography. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of... It's like it's going on and on. In perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst and fasting often, in cold and nakedness, beside the other things... The things that come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to stumble? And I do not burn with indignation. If I boast, notice what he's boasting in. I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. What does that mean? I'm going to boast in my infirmity. And that's what he's just done here, hasn't he? His infirmity was his struggling, his tribulation, his pain, his suffering. I'm sure there was a lot of discouragement and anger. What is he going to boast in? Those things that he was able to overcome. But we have to face our tribulation. We have to overcome our trials if we're ever going to be able to boast of the greatness and glory of God in our life. I'm going to boast in the things which concern my infirmity. That's my resume, he says. 
You're going to tell me about, um, about struggle? I can talk to you about struggle. That's why the Bible talks about, when it talks about us as Christians, that he that endures to the end shall be saved. Take that in context now. To endure, one has to expend effort to overcome the resistance in his life. That's endurance. Endurance isn't going for a walk. Endurance is climbing a mountain. But the Bible says the church is going to have to endure. It's, and I don't know why God's put this on my heart so strongly unless he wants me to share with the church that we're entering a phase in this time in history where we're going to know what endurance really is. And we're going to have to expend energy and spiritual strength to overcome the obstacles that we may face. But that's not negative. You say it sure sounds negative because the greater the struggle, the greater the outcome. Now, I ask you a question. Who would you rather have come and share their testimony? And don't take this wrong, okay? Some people could take this wrong. A weathered soldier of the faith that has experienced every type of battle or someone that just got their degree and has started preaching. You want to have the one that's tasted the sweat of struggle and endured the sharp pains of tribulation because their testimony and their overcoming of those things will encourage you when you're going through the same thing. I've had, I had one person, I won't tell you who it is. I don't want to do that. I was going in for a procedure on my back and uh, they, they called it an ablation. Um, it's where they, they stick needles into the nerve in your spine and they inject high frequency radio waves to kill the nerves so you don't get, you have any pain after that. They kill the nerve. And I happened to mention that to somebody that they were going to do ablation on one of the nerves in my back. And I'll never forget, that person said to me, oh, that's terrible. I wouldn't have that again. I, scree I screamed out in pain. Now, do you think that encouraged me? But what if someone would have said to me, yeah, it hurt, but it was worth it. I remember, Kevin, I'm sorry, I'm thinking about your, your knee replacements, the double, two knees at one time. I am glad I had mine done before you because you told me about your two and I thought, I'd never do that again. But here he is. Kevin was talking to me, and we, we all share war stories. Uh, Brother Hickey, too. All these people that have new joints running around. And he got, he, he got down on his knees and bent his knees. He says, I get on my knees all the time when I work on my trucks. I'm really glad I had my knee surgery, he said. Look at this, he said. But that was the same guy that shared with me his pain in the hospital when both of them were replaced. You know, I want to say this. You mothers already know this. There's no pain like childbirth. But there's no blessing like holding that newborn child. And your husband cannot feel the same thing that you feel when you hold that baby in your arms for the first time. He can hold it. It's cute and he's going to love it. But this child came forth through your pain. And that's how I'm going to sort of wrap up tonight. You're going to have pain and struggle. And sometimes God's going to intercede and he's going to blow in and he's going to heal you. 
But I don't think that's as great a miracle as the outcome that could have been accomplished through providence. It helped you out of a bad situation. It helped you out of a bind, a bind where you were in pain. But I wonder sometimes if the greater blessing might have been the outcome if you would have went through the divine providence of the situation. But I'll take a miracle. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not saying don't take a miracle. But we sometimes only focus on the instantaneous relief of us from the situation. Not the treasure trove of benefit at the end of it. I have one miracle I want to share because I don't want you to think I don't believe in miracles. My greatest miracle that I ever experienced, undeniable, with proof from x-rays and doctors, was the brain aneurysm I had, a brain aneurysm I had. And I think I was coming to this church when I had it. That was probably around 2002 when I went in for a gallbladder surgery and they found, I, I came out of the surgery and I nearly passed out when I, I got out of the, off of the bed with a terrible, terrible pain in my head. It was so bad, I thought I was going to pass out. I cried out. I said, guys, you've got to do something. I'm going to pass out. They rushed me to the emergency room. They did an MRI and they saw that I had at the foramen area of the base of my brain a huge cyst. And what had happened is it was cutting off the fluid from my spinal column into my brain. Which, you know, is what, hap what happens when that, you die. And I'll never forget the trial uh, that I went through because they were going to do brain surgery. And uh, they, were, they had to do it really quick. They sent me to St. Luke's to the head of neurosurgery. And I didn't want anybody to know you know why? I didn't want them to drag me down. I didn't want to look at their, the faces of people when they looked at me. Oh, you got a brain aneurysm? I didn't want to deal with that because I had my own fear to deal with. I didn't want to see it in their faces. But somehow or another, um, someone, the word got out. And I actually went into St. Luke's and they were describing the surgery to me. They were saying, we're going to have to cut from the top of your head, remove a place of your skull. We're going to have to go down this way and you're going to have uh, seizures afterwards. You can count on the seizures because we're going to be uh, disturbing nerves in your brain. And it was overwhelming to me. And so there was a Friday night. They were having a minister's meeting at Parkway, all the ministers from the section and state were there, I believe. It was just full. The house was full. And I was working the harvest time booth. And so the service is going on. I'm working the harvest time table. And someone comes out and they say, Brother Kylie, we want you to come into the sanctuary right now. And I said, well, for what? And they said, well, come on, just come right now. And they brought me up. And they got up behind the platform and they told everybody, we want to let you know we got to pray for Brother Kylie right now. He's got a brain aneurysm and we got to act, do some God needs to do a miracle right now. And that, all that's true, but I didn't want to have that happen. So they all prayed on me and the rest of the night everybody was saying good to mind. And me, oh, Brother Kylie, it's been so nice knowing you. And you know how they do it. You know, God's going to take care of your brother. I just know it, but can I have your car when you're gone? We have a unique way of doing that to people. We tell them it's going to be all right, but indirectly we're saying, oh, I'm sure glad I'm not you. But the, the thing that happened is the next day, before I went into surgery, the neurosurgeon wanted one more time to map out with me how he was going to do the surgery. So my brother... And my wife came with me up to St. Luke's and they had taken another MRI and they, had, they hung it up on the little screen up there and he says, well, here's what we're going to do. He never looked at it before I got in there. He just put it up there, the new one. And he's looking at it and I'm saying, well, what are you going to do? And he's like, I can't find it. 
And he's upset. I don't what those guys doing in radiology. He called downstairs. He says, hey, I got this MRI. I, what's going on here? I, I, I'm trying to discuss this surgery with the patient, and, and the cyst isn't there. And I'm going, really? And it wasn't. And it was gone. It was on this one, but it wasn't on this one. Now, that's an instantaneous healing. Now, I'm, I'm real skeptical. Maybe I have unbelief, but I had the MRI done at Economic Memorial, and I knew the guy, the radiologist that did the, the MRI, so I knew him. And I didn't want to do this, but the devil kept telling me, oh, it's a mistake. This really, either didn't have it, or they're all goofed up. And I called him up and I said, hey, I, I got this thing with the MRI that you took here at the hospital, and, and they, they can't find it. They can't find the cyst on it. And I, did you read it right, or it, were you both wrong? And he said, Steve, come down right now. I got some time. Come down, and he put it up there, and he said, that is as clear as the nose on my face. That is there. And he said, I can't explain it, what happened, but it's gone. Well, I, I was really extremely excited about that, but what would have happened if I would have had the surgery? I don't want to. I'm glad I didn't. I'm not saying I'm, I'm glad I, I didn't. But God always uses circumstances in our lives to teach us trust and faith and build hope. I was talking to a lady before I came to, oh boy, the time went, I'm sorry. Before I came to church tonight, I was at, I'm working over at Pro Health in Pewaukee and my back was aching so I was sitting in a chair and you know how it is, pastors are. They just start talking to anybody. And I, I, w I was sharing some story uh, with this, this lady. And I said, you know, people oftentimes say that they don't believe in things because you've got to, for science, you have to have substance and evidence. And in Christianity, there's no substance and there's no evidence. And I said, you know, that's wrong. Because the Bible even before science started to get so philosophical, mentioned that faith is the substance. And hope, faith is the substance of things not seen, the evidence of hope, things hoped for. So in closing right now, we have substance and we have evidence we need to acquire patience because in the divine providence of God, all these things will work out for his will in our life. I pray, you know, sometimes I, I might pray, Lord, give them an immediate healing right now. But sometimes in the back of my mind, I say, God, what is it that you're trying to accomplish in that life? Remember that kid that tried, that opened up the cocoon where the caterpillar was too early? And he complained to his dad, why, why did the, the butterfly died? You remember the story? He cut it open and he put it up on the mantle, but the butterfly died. And his dad said, son, the re you killed it. You killed the butterfly. He didn't say it exactly like that. When you opened up the cocoon, you never allowed that butterfly to develop completely the strength that he needed to fly. He needed to stay in the cocoon until he had developed the muscular ability to survive on his own. But because you took him out too soon, you're somewhat responsible for his death. And who knows what God's doing in your life. And sometimes you're going to feel like you're going backward instead of towards the promise. It's like you're going backward. But just let him drive. Keep on praising him. Keep on living for him because in a moment, God can take you from the prison to the place of authority and recognition in the kingdom of God. All right, let's stand together. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. 
We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.